Hello and welcome to Ask Matt. I'm Eugene Cordero, Professor of Meteorology and Climate Science from San Jose State University and founder and director of Green Ninja. Green Ninja is an educational initiative that helps teachers make learning science meaningful and rewarding for their students through engaging curriculum where students use science and engineering to solve real-world environmental problems. I'm here with Matt Delasio, geology professor from Cal State Northridge and chief author of the 2016 California Science Framework on NGSS. Matt has dedicated over 20 years of his life to science education and is a national expert on how to make science learning effective and engaging. Matt was a high school science teacher, runs a sustainability education program at an elementary school, and spent a year as a stay-at-home dad. Matt cares deeply about the environment, and he's also recently received a Distinguished Teaching Award from Cal State Northridge. Matt's wife currently is running for city council in Los Angeles, and together with their three kids, they are a very busy family. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I met Matt about three years ago, and he agreed to provide our team with advice as we created our own NGSS curriculum here at Green Ninja. Today, we are an approved science publisher in California, in large part because of Matt's guidance and advice. We all learned a lot from working with Matt, and I thought it would be helpful and nice to share some of his wisdom and insight with others, in particular teachers. So here we are. I'll ask Matt some questions about a range of subjects from NGSS and science teaching to professional training and science content. And hopefully, we'll all learn some more about how to make this transition to NGSS easier and more rewarding for teachers and students. If you're listening and have any of your own questions, just send them to info at greenninja.org, and I'll share some of them with Matt in a future episode. Let's get started. First, I want to say thank you, Matt, for taking the time to be here with me. I know your life is really busy, so I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So can you, so can you give us a short history of the Next Generation Science Standards from a kind of a 30,000-foot view? Well, unfortunately, the, the history would not be very short because uh, really these standards began with decades of, of research in how people learn about science. And that's really what under, undergirds all of the innovations that they've been trying to get us to do in our classrooms is we're trying to make it fit better with what we now know about how people learn science. And so there were studies that were summarized in this uh, important document in the early 2000s called How People Learn. And a lot of that made it into, into the NGSS. Uh, and eventually, it basically just became this organically growing thing, unlike, um, unlike the, the, the Smarter Balance, or sorry, not the Smarter, the Common Core, which was led by states. Uh, this was, uh, grew up more organically within, included some states and some efforts, but it uh, is really driven by what we know about how, we, how to teach science. And how did you get involved in helping write the 2016 California uh, Science Framework? Well, uh, I worked a lot with teachers um, uh, doing professional development with them, trying to help them uh, get their teaching uh, up to the way that they wanted it to be. Uh, and I, I'm involved in a program called the California Science Project, which is funded by the state and federal governments to, to do that and to do exactly that. And we work a lot with mostly secondary teachers at my science project. Uh, and the state reached out to the director of the California Science Project, uh, the statewide director, and said, hey, we, we want you to help lead this. You are some of the, the experts uh, uh, in science education and in, in both K-12 and at the university level. We want you to kind of spearhead this. And so our, our statewide director, Maria Simani, uh, started reaching out to people and, and started with me and our team at, at, at Cal State Northridge, particularly because we had a lot of expertise at the high school level. And uh, my expertise in earth science was one that's it's unfortunately rare uh, among the state uh, and our, our people that are around here in the state of California. So uh, that's, that's how I got started in the whole deal. And it sort of snowballed from there. I started just writing the earth science 
section of the high school, which grew to a whole integrated uh, three-course model in high school, and then the parts of middle school and elementary school. Basically, I started picking up more and more until I ended up being the, the single unifying voice to the whole document. Uh, a lot of people put in a lot of work to it, uh, but I ended up being the last person with my fingers on the keyboard trying to make it flow nicely and have a, a single coherent message. And, and in the end of it, um, were you pretty happy with the final result? There's a lot of things that I'm really proud of and a lot of things that, that I'm not. I mean, this is, uh, nobody knew really how to teach NGSS uh, when we were writing about how to teach NGSS. We had some great ideas, but we've learned a lot since then. So if we were to start this whole process over again right now, we would probably come up with a, a pretty different document in a lot of ways. Certain things would, would be still the same, but we now know how to, how to communicate about it better. And we also know how to do some of the things uh, better and differently than we did before. So uh, why do you think NGSS is going to be good for students and teachers? Well, really, what we're starting with is this whole idea, if you've, if you've heard much about NGSS, you know, we're starting with phenomena. We're starting with stuff that's happening in the world around people. And when I talk with teachers and, and, and say, graduate students in our department, um, in the geology department, I, I work a lot with, with graduate students who are TAs in our, our classes, and I tell them there's only three things you need to know about teaching. Um, and the first one is you need to build community. The second one is that you need to be close to your students. They're doing lab sections, and if they all sit up at the front of the classroom, they, it doesn't work. So I call it to say proximity. That's the C for community, P for proximity. And the third one is the most important, and that's R for relevance. They need to make sure that the material is relevant to their students because if their students don't care, there's no point in trying to teach them because they're just not going to be activated. And what NGSS does is it starts with things that are relevant to our students. It starts with what's in the world around them, gets them looking at those things before we try and understand anything, before we try and come up with these great unifying principles of science, we're, we're starting with looking at what's going on. And that's going to unlock a whole lot more doors for, for students, and, and they're going to be much more interested in it. Uh, and, we, and we see that in particular with some of the, um, the, the, the students that are not necessarily having as good of experience in the past with science. Those are the students that have struggled with science because it was just too abstract. And those are the students we think are going to get the most out of this. The highest performing students, they do pretty well no matter what. And we can sort of joke about the fact that they'll do no matter what, whether they have a teacher or not. Uh, uh, but we're really targeting the full breadth of science students and not just that upper echelon that learned best from the way we might have been doing things before. And, and is that advice that you're giving to your graduate students something that teachers in the classroom can take on too? Those kind of I think so. And I don't know if you noticed the letters there, CPR. You just need to do CPR with your course, community, proximity, and relevance. And I think that's, if you just boil it down to that, I mean, obviously there's a lot more to the NGSS, for example. Uh, but uh, really what we are trying to do is make sure that your students trust you and are willing to work with you and that you're there for them and that uh, you're doing something that they think is important. And that's the community. Is that that first part? I was just curious that's, about the community. That's the community. The community part is 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 about is about building up trust and relationships with your students in the classroom. It's uh, uh, you know you don't just start and turn your back to them and start teaching and writing things on the board. You you need to make sure that you're learning their names and and knowing who they are as people and what's important to them because you can't obviously do the relevance without becoming part of that that community of, of people. And this proximity. Proximity is, is that it really applies very closely for the lab sections that my, my TAs are teaching because uh, they just, I find that students are asking so many more questions if you're right next to them and they're willing to sort of grab you and, and just say, hey, 
Uh, I have this question here, whereas if you're at the front of the room, they're not willing to raise their hand, they're not willing to come up to you. And, and so we just, we just need to be accessible to our students and, and help them. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and so how do you think NGSS is gonna be for teachers? Well, it's, uh, for a lot of teachers, this is, this is really exciting because it is untethering them. It's unleashing them to do the things that they really like to do, to learn about science and about the coolest things in science and not be so rigorously tied to these specific facts that their students need to learn. They can start exploring neat new stuff. And that's exciting for a lot of teachers. And it's also incredibly overwhelming and scary for a lot of other teachers who may not feel as prepared, especially as we look at our elementary teachers, uh, but even into middle school and even high school. Uh, this is, uh, especially since we don't have a lot of curriculum uh, that's available and accessible and out uh, for a lot of these people, uh, they, they might have you know, I know the Green Ninja has already produced a curriculum that's state approved, but most districts haven't purchased their curricula. And so that's, that's, um, that's a, a problem for the teachers that feel like they just, how do I begin this and what do I do? I can't, I don't have time to develop my own curriculum. And that's, that's really what we're seeing a lot of is that, that frustration and fear about this mismatch between we want you to do this and we're not giving you the tools yet to do it. Um, now, you've been working with teachers for, you know, for the last, for, for many years, but ha can you share some examples of how some of the teachers you've been working with or that you've, that you've collaborated with have kind of adopted some of these ideas in Green Ninja and it's benefited them in their, in their classroom and their own teaching practice? Yeah, well, um, one of the things that I'm really excited to see teachers doing is that they're, uh, they're, they're no longer afraid about not knowing the answer. In other words, they were used to say, I, I'm not going to try something unless I know everything about it. And so what they've done is they, they might go and, uh, and take their kids outside and take them to a, a park that they can walk to nearby. And this has happened with a couple of our, our teachers that live uh, that, that were here near Northridge. They, they took their kids to a park and they just said, all right, we're going to set up a little grid on the, on the grass in this park and we're just going to see what we see. I don't know what we're going to see. When a teacher says that, they say, I don't know what we're going to find out, but I want to see what's going on in this community or in, you know, this, in this environment here. I want to try and figure out if there's a difference between this side of the field and that side of the field. And I have no idea what we're going to find. And they're actually doing that. That's the really exciting thing is when they're actually brave enough to go out and do that and engage in this, this community around them or this environment around them and, and see what's going on. And th that's the most successful thing. And the kids are totally into it. They might have, you know, in, in the classroom, they might not be at all on task or focused, but they're sitting there and they're, they're, the teachers are coming back and reporting to me. They spent, you know, 20 minutes sitting and staring at a, you know, three foot by three foot grid cell. I can't get them to stare at anything for 20 minutes straight in the classroom. And they're doing it when we're out there. But then the exciting part is not that. I mean, that's cool. It's exciting. But um we like to tell people that collecting data is, is virtually useless. It's, okay, you got your kids engaged and they spent some time outside. Of course they liked it. But what's really powerful is that then they come back in and now they're making graphs of things. They're trying to see patterns and stuff and they're actually engaged in that part too. And they're trying to make meaning of what they saw. And that's, I think, the biggest victory really is not the, um, not the fact that you can keep them engaged when they're outside doing something, but it's really that they now have ownership of an exciting question that they're trying to answer and they actually do it. Yeah, and that is interesting because for the teacher, they had to feel like a scientist themselves, allowing their students to go outside and discover something that they may not feel comfortable with and not know the answer to. Like, what's that little insect? Or, or why is, yeah. why is this thing got a shade of red on it? 
And, but feeling the kind of empowerment that this is how science is. We don't always know the answers, I think is that key piece. In it. Very much. And we, we really try and, and communicate that as somebody that's, that's come from being a practicing research scientist, that scientists get excited when they don't know the answer about something. And that's something that's very different than, than a lot of teachers were trained and how they felt like they, they needed to act was like they needed to be the one that always knew the answer and their students could smell blood if they didn't know the answer and they would, they would dig into them if they were, would be caught without actually knowing an answer. And, uh, and that's, that's a big shift is that now our students are actually looking at problems that, that I don't know the answer to as you know the PhD in earth science and they're looking at some earth science thing. It's like, wow, I, I don't know. I don't know that either. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a great, when, once you get that feeling, then you don't feel as nervous in your classroom for a student asking you some crazy question because it's okay to not know the answer. That's right. And that together, you know, this community hopefully can, can make progress in that direction. So uh, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge? I mean, you've, you've identified a couple, but for teachers implementing NGSS. Hmm. I think that... Uh, Part of, partly it's just feeling comfortable with being that chief explorer uh, and they need to be get, given permission by their administrators. That's a big part of it. Um, and they also just need to be getting used to that. And, and, and their students as well. Their students need to get uh, used to it as well, that, that their students' role is changing in this. And a lot of students give pushback about this, especially the students that are the highest performers that are very used to They, they know how to do school is what we, we say. And so they, they figured out this game and they know exactly what questions they need to ask in order to, to, tell, you know, to, to, get the, to tell the answer that's going to get them the A. And all of a sudden we're changing and it's like, you know, what you can't just tell me back what I just told you and expect to 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 be getting the A. Now we're we're doing a lot more stuff, and so uh, it's getting permission from everybody and themselves, from the, the administrators and, and the students, and that's a big shift of expectations and parents, I guess, as well, because they push a lot of the agenda. Uh, so that's trying to get the buy-in from everybody. And how long do you think, or, or in, in your observations, how long does it take? Uh, a teacher to kind of make that transition, you know, towards NGSS and this kind of new approach and the classroom dynamics are changing, students' expectations are changing. Well, it depends on, is this a, are we talking about a teacher that's working in a district that's got a lot of support for them or are they in a district where they don't have a lot of support? And that's, uh, it will never happen in districts that are not helping their teachers along and not supporting their teachers, giving them time and resources to do it. And it will never happen. So that's, that's uh, the, the, the downside. And for those that are trying to pick it up, I mean, a lot of our teachers are amazing and they've been amazing for a long time. And NGSS is not actually anything new in many ways. We knew, it's, like I said, it's, it's trying to codify what we knew as good teaching practices all along. And, and so there's some teachers that are, that are running with it right away. And so we've got the, the never are gonna, never gonna get it because they aren't given the support or the time. We've got the ones that are just unleashed. But of course, you know, there's this big section in the middle and, um, you know, from our, our research with professional development that my group at, at Northridge has done, we've been looking at how it takes maybe three years of summer workshops with us before we start seeing teachers really running with things, the ones that were kind of in that middle ground there. And so we gave them the support. But even just, you know, after one two week summer workshop, that wasn't enough. It really required multiple touches and multiple opportunities to, to deal with things. And, and maybe in future episodes, we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more about what, what the components in there. Um, can I ask you, uh, what is three-dimensional instruction? And then this is, a, this is something that's used a lot in the framework that we hear about. Yeah, well, um, 
you kind of you, you got these three dimensions, and we like to talk about them kind of as a as the three legs of a, or three corners of a triangle. And so I always I, I, before I talk about what what the corners of the triangle are, is I talk about what's in the middle of that. What's in the middle is some sort of uh, scientific mystery or something you're trying to figure out. And so, what sort of things do you need to bring to bear uh, from that those corners of the triangle in order to 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 answer this scientific mystery. So, you know, why is the sky blue? Uh, well, you need to know some things. That's, you need to know some background material about light and how light behaves and the, that sort of stuff. That's, that's our, our, our disciplinary core ideas. So we've got that there. We need to, now that we've got this question, we need to figure out how to investigate it. How, do we get, how are we gonna get the evidence and how are we gonna present the evidence and analyze the evidence? That's the doing of the science. Uh, and that's a certain set of skills that you can use. And then lastly, there's just some certain mindsets and type ways that student scientists think about things. Um, they're thinking about uh, the conservation of energy always, or they're thinking about uh, just how different parts are interacting in a system. And these are just ways that they kind of approach problems. And that's the cross-cutting concept. So we've got this problem and we're gonna use all three of these legs of the triangle to, to really solve that. And so a three-dimensional instruction is where you are trying to focus on developing a student in all three of those domains or all three of those dimensions. You're trying to make sure that they are synthesizing and learning those key concepts of, of, of each discipline. You're trying to make sure that they get practice on asking better questions, uh, developing more sophisticated models and interactions, and coming up with all those questions that, that are based on those common themes from the cross-cutting concepts, and they're really internalizing those so that they, they go to those right away when they see a new problem, like, hmm, I wonder where the energy is coming from. And that's a part of how they approach things. It's going to be great when our students graduate after 12 years of doing NGSS instruction, and they've been thinking about this for, for over a decade. Yes, yes. Um, I know this is a little silly question, but, but what do you like better, the science and engineering practices, one of those dimensions, or cross-cutting concepts? Oh, oh, that's a tough one. Um, well, the SEPs, the, 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 the science practices are a whole lot easier for me to talk about with teachers and to get them to start working on them. I can show them what it means to do really interesting models and have them start working on using modeling in their classroom. And I, so I like that aspect of things. But um, to be honest, uh, working on the framework really helped me become a better scientist because the framework, we spelled out these cross-cutting concepts explicitly. Uh, I like to tell this story that my wife is, is a physicist and I'm a geologist. And uh, when we were in grad school, we used to go out uh, to dinner with all of her physicist friends. She had lots of physicist friends. And they would all sit there talking about things. And I would have no clue what they were talking about because they're physics graduate students and they knew all these things and all these words. And I just didn't know how to approach stuff outside of my own discipline. I've developed a lot as a scientist just as a, myself, but also then thinking about these cross-cutting concepts, they've actually helped me go out and read about stuff that's outside of my own discipline. And in the process of writing the framework, I had to do a lot of that. I had to learn things that were way outside of my discipline. But because I was mindful of, okay, structure and function, there's a lot of that in biology. I'm not a biologist by training. I haven't taken that many geology or biology classes. But I'm going to look for structure and function relations. I'm going to ask questions about structure and function. Or... Uh, in physics, it's all about energy and yeah. energy conservation. And, and so I can just look at it and say, oh, this equation, it's all complicated. I don't know what it's talking about. But I can see that the left side and the right side are equal. And that's all they're trying to say is that energy is conserved from this to that. And I all of a sudden have this new window to unlock things. And so I love the cross-cutting concepts because they've actually helped me be a better scientist. Well, that's a great story. Uh, and 
yeah, I, I think that I had the same same thing of going to a physics party of people from Caltech and, and being totally clueless about what they're talking about. Um, and so I, I can understand how the cross-cutting concepts can help. Um, okay, so let's, uh, for this, this next short segment, let's turn our attention to climate change and the environment. And we're going to review some of the latest news in this area and just talk about how to bring such, such topics into our schools and classrooms. So um, how's the weather been for you uh, in Los Angeles there, Matt? Um, this has been an interesting and crazy year where we've gone from really, really cold to really, really hot. And then right now we're in the state of perfection. What do we usually think of as a perfect LA spring day, just the right temperature. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, but do you find that people still get confused by the difference between weather and climate? Well, I just told you to say perfect, typical spring day, and that's, that's the, this typicalness of climate. And, uh, but we've been going all over the place with our day-to-day -day weather. And so people get confused about that. But I'm actually, so I'm, I'm talking to a meteorologist in, in you, Eugene. Um, and I'm going to say something you may or may not like, which I actually don't think that there's a distinction between weather and climate. I think that it's all a matter of scale, one of our cross-cutting concepts here. And we, whenever we talk about weather on anything, we're always talking about an average over space and time. So what's the weather like in, in San Jose today? You can tell me a number, but you don't really mean that. You don't mean it's the weather in San Jose. You mean in one little spot, wherever they've got their little thermometer at one little instant, and that everything beyond that one instantaneous measurement is is just is an average over a bigger bigger space and bigger time. And, and you just think about, well, are we talking about the average over that day? Or are we talking about the average over decades or millennia? And it's, it is just the same thing, just averages over different times. So that's my, my perspective on things. And people certainly don't get that distinction about how when we're looking at averages, uh, that's something that's lost definitely. And that's, I think, what people are talking about when they say the difference between weather and climate. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that's obviously, that's a good point. We, uh, we, the issue we find sometimes is that when you have a very hot day in the winter or a cold day in the summer, that people start to conflate that, get those a little confused and think that the issue of climate change is either enhanced or, or not happening at all. Um, just looking at some, some short periods of time. And do, do, do you, uh, have, you, have you seen the, the, new, the new terminology that I've been adopting and actually my, my textbook in neuroscience is, is global weirding? Um, and, and referring to global weirding as the, as the phenomenon. Because it's not necessarily, there's a lot of warming going on, but, but really we're looking at some really strange things happening and a, a change in our typical uh, background patterns. And so I like, I like that one as being the, the, uh, the best descriptor of what we're in, embarking upon here as we, as we uh, adjust our Earth's climate. Yeah, I, I definitely heard that, that uh, phrase. And I guess for me, the term weird just seems a little, as a scientist, just seems a little odd, but uh, um, it does convey that things are changing. And uh, even my own dad, uh, I, he mentioned that term to me, that it made sense to him that things are, are changing in ways that we hadn't expected. Yeah. Um, I want to, can we talk about Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old uh, Swedish student who basically started a personal movement. To, she left school one day a week to to sit on the steps of parliament in Sweden and uh, to, to say, I want adults to take climate change more seriously. And this ultimately started a global youth movement to protest inaction of adults uh, and governments on climate change. And it's happened in, in all these different countries. It, it's been in, in on Fridays in different parts of the United States. Were you as surprised as others to see the youth kind of like step forward and, and take center stage here? Uh, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised, but I will say that her picture is up on my wall in, in our office here uh, because 
she's truly an inspiration. This is somebody that's standing up and uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that people are, are saying this is our future and, and this is exactly what we want. We want to be training all of our, all of our kids uh, in, in schools. This is the whole purpose of school is to get them to, to analyze and think about things. So, but yes, of course, we're surprised when we find somebody as articulate as that that's, that's just taken off and become such an inspiration to, to so many people, including myself. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm both surprised and, and proud that our world produced somebody like that. Yeah, me too. And, I, and what role do you, do you kind of think that education plays in this? Well, we need to make sure, you know, what did she do? She went and, and did something that was very not typical of, of education. She was brave enough to say, this is what I, this is what I know and this is what I'm going to do. Whereas, uh, uh, she, so she stepped out of the regular boundaries of, of, the, of the typical education. I think that's part of uh, what we really want to make sure, you know, NGSS is partly trying, I won't say it's doing that as well as we'd love it to, but we, we want basically people to be thinking about things and becoming deep thinkers and giving them the tools to do stuff and uh, really make passionate arguments and support those with evidence. And, and so this is, she's doing exactly what, what education is supposed to be. And I don't know what her educational background is and how, how she got all those tools specifically and who supported her along the way. Those are all things that I think uh, uh, people will be looking at as we, as we go forward and try and learn more about finding out how we can duplicate that uh, elsewhere. But this is, this is really what we want to be doing everywhere. Yeah, it really is inspirational, and, and her story is wonderful, and, and especially how it's captured um, many other of her contemporaries, other, other students in all parts of the world to also kind of uh, stand up and say, we want people to do something about this, and we also want to be better educated about this in, in our own classrooms. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that does lend in well with, with some of the goals in NGSS. Um, and, you know, for the first time, there, there's a much stronger emphasis in, in our science standards about human impact and about solutions to environmental issues, which, is, which I think is somewhat helpful. Yeah, definitely. Okay, uh, the last thing I just wanted to ask you was about, uh, was about burritos. So um, early on, Matt and I discovered that one of the things we have in common is a love for burritos. And it may be surprising, but the subject of burritos isn't so far away from science, education, and environment. So, uh, so I told my colleagues here at Green Ninja that in every episode we have for Ask Matt, I'll at least ask, we'll at least talk about burritos at one moment. So Matt, have you ever met a burrito that you didn't love? Well, um, yes, definitely. <laughs> my burritos are, are, are very specific. Um, and uh, I think you know this about me, but everybody else doesn't. But uh, I, don't, I don't eat meat. Uh, and, so, and I also don't eat dairy. So um, there are a lot of burritos that have those things in them. And, those aren't as exciting to me as, as, as the others. Um, and so when you, uh, and, and myself being a Mexican-American, I'm also kind of leaning toward vegetarian. Um, and I found that sometimes when you go to a Mexican restaurant and asking for a burrito and you don't want meat, that sometimes you have to have a discussion about this. That this isn't always just like right on the menu. So <laughs> what have you been, have, have you had that similar experience? Well, it's yes. Yeah, so certainly, there's there's uh, all sorts of, uh, of of burrito purists here that have a certain way that they want to, their burrito uh, presented to me at the at the restaurants, and it involves a lot of great carne asada and things like this. But uh, um, uh, we we make it work because when I say I want rice and beans and and maybe an avocado, and they're, they're they they can make it happen. They can do it. Thank you so much, Matt, for, for joining us today and for, for discussing, you know, some, some of these questions. 
Um, we have, we'll have some more next time we meet. But until, until then, um, again, thanks for your time. Uh, we look forward to catching up again next time and talking about education, NGSS, science, and the environment. We'll catch up pretty soon. All right. I can't wait. Talk to you later.